you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking uh, beginning in verse 32 and then going into chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can go out into our lobby. We give them away for free as long, uh, uh, sorry, as well as with any book or other gift that you'd like. So you can go grab one. It'd be great to have a Bible with you open. Uh, We're going to be around Scripture quite a bit. Um, And before we do that, before we dive into God's Word this morning, let's pray and ask that God would be with us, that He would be our teacher, that He would open our eyes, that He would change us. So let's pray. Dear God, uh, you say that if any lacks wisdom, let them ask you and you who gives generously to all without reproach, it will be given. Let them ask in faith with no doubting, For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from you, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This morning we come to you, God, and and we ask that you would pour out your wisdom on us as the one who gives generously, as the one who does not change. As we just sang, you're the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, eternally wise, eternally good. Help us to know your ways, God. Teach us your paths, lead us in your truth, and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation, and we wait for you. We also ask, God, given how challenging this message is this morning, that you would humble our minds, you would humble our souls, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. So would you draw near to us, God, and give us minds, hearts that are humble and ready to listen, hearts and minds that are humbled by your Holy Spirit, hearts that fear you. We ask all of this to you, God the Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit who has been poured out into our hearts, who prays and intercedes for us. And we ask this all. And God's God's people said, Amen. So there's a lesser known story. Uh, You might not be familiar with it. It comes from the Old Testament. It's in the book of 2 Samuel, and the story is kind of framed by God powerfully and graciously uniting Israel into one kingdom. There was usually Israel to the north and Judah in the south, but God powerfully and graciously united these two kingdoms as one under King David. And one of David's first acts as king over this unified kingdom was to bring the ark of God, his dwelling place where his holiness rested, to take that ark and bring it into Jerusalem so that Jerusalem would be the epicenter of the people of God. God was doing this powerful and gracious work. He was establishing his kingdom, establishing his people. So as the story goes, David conscripted two men, two men, one by the name of Ahio, the other by the name of Uzzah. And they were conscripted by David to take the ark of God, which was in Kiriath-Jerim, and move it 10 miles east to be in Jerusalem. So Ahio and Uzzah load the ark onto a cart and it's pulled by an oxen and they begin to trek 10 miles east toward Jerusalem and all of Israel's breaking out into celebration. They're celebrating before the Lord with songs and music and dancing and instruments. And as this procession gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, they reach a threshing floor And it's just outside the gates of Jerusalem. And as they reach that, the oxen stumbles. And the ark, which is on this cart, begins 
to tip over. And Uzzah, who's behind the cart, he sees the oxen stumble and the cart about to tip over. And in an effort to make sure it doesn't hit the ground and shatter and break, he reaches out his hand to try and stop it from falling. And at this point, one of the most dreadful and terrifying accounts in all of Scripture takes place. We read that as Uzzah reached out and grabbed hold of the ark, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and this place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez Uzzah means the Lord breaks out against Uzzah. Whoa. In an instant... The whole celebration stops. It comes to a screeching halt. You know, there were castanet players there, even it says. No, they're not playing castanets anymore. And the people are reminded in shocking and dreadful fashion, the same God who is supremely powerful and supremely gracious, establishing his people, establishing their kingdom, is also a God who is to be greatly feared. God who is also supremely holy, a God of supreme judgment and righteousness. There's actually a parallel account to this story. It's in the book of Acts, which we've been studying, and we're in chapter 4. And at the end of chapter 4, what Luke is doing is, is he's recounting, he's summarizing up to this point the great grace and the great power of Jesus through his church. And you see that in verse 33. It, this summary says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We saw this last week, if you were with us, that the apostles had faced mounting opposition to their teaching. They were teaching in the name of Jesus, and these authorities were tightening the screws more and more on the early church. They arrested Peter and John. They questioned both of them. They threatened Peter and John, charging them, do not talk about Jesus. Don't speak about his sacrificial death. Don't call people to repentance and faith in his name. And most importantly, do not speak about his resurrection from the dead. These are the same men who just weeks before had arrested, questioned, threatened, and ultimately handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. And here they are now, post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus, putting pressure on the apostles, tightening the screws on them, seeing if they're going to crack, seeing if they're going to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. This happened just the other day. It was, uh, we were getting ready for we're getting ready for a school day, and I'm, I'm there cooking eggs in my kitchen, and all of a sudden, we have this big island. All of a sudden, I hear this screeching sound. I'm not sure what it is, but I hear it again, you know. So finally, I, I walk around the island, and I see there's my daughter, Jane, sitting on a stool, pushing herself, scratching against our hardwood floor, going around our kitchen island. And my wife sees this and she says, Jane, stop, you're going to scratch our floor. About five seconds transpire. (laughs) 
And so at this point, I'm like, all right, here comes dad. He's got to tighten the screws on this little girl now. So I go over to her and I say, hey, hey, Jane, you heard what your mom said. You know that there's going to be consequences if you disobey. If you continue to do what you're doing, no dessert tonight. That's final. It's not going to happen. And you know, it reminds me, in that scene right there, one of two things is happening. Either one, Jane is either brazenly disobedient, or two, Jane has a supernatural boldness and defiance by the power and grace of Jesus to continue in spite of her father's threats. It's one of the two. And now I love Jane, but I have to say, I think in her case, it's the former. But for the apostles, in face of threats, in face of opposition, it's the latter. You see this throughout the book of Acts. Throughout Acts, as the screws are tightened, as, as they face mounting opposition, pressure, threats, imprisonment, stoning, shipwreck, exile, even threats of death, the apostles with super natural boldness by the power and grace that can only come by the spirit of Christ within them, they continue, it says it in verse 33, giving their testimony, teaching and speaking, nothing makes them crack, nothing makes them stop, nothing hinders them from teaching powerfully about the resurrection of Jesus. Because after all, it is through faith in Jesus, faith in his message, his life, his death, and ultimately the exclamation point, his resurrection from the dead, that God saves humanity from the wrath of God, which is to come. That's exactly what one apostle, the apostle Paul, said the gospel was about. The good news was about God saving people from the coming wrath of God. If you want to know how maybe the earliest apostles taught, a good place to look is the book of Romans, where Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't matter if I experience ridicule or opposition or hostility. It doesn't matter if you tighten the screws on me. It, it doesn't matter if you want me to stop teaching, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. It is by faith in Jesus, in his name, through the gospel message, that God powerfully and graciously saves humanity from the wrath of God, which will be revealed. Because don't, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Wrath and judgment are coming to this world. It's a lot like a hurricane off the coast. If you've ever lived in Florida or you know somebody who's been living in Florida, you know it doesn't matter how much you deny a hurricane that is looming over the Atlantic. It's going to come nonetheless. We can try and erase God's judgment from our collective conscience. We can try and avoid the topic of God's wrath. We can try and explain away passages that speak about the eternal punishment of God. C.H. Dodd, he's, he's actually a theologian out of Cambridge. He, he was commenting on Paul's use of the word wrath in Romans chapter 1, used right here. And he said, oh, that idea is, is just, quote, an archaic phrase which suits a thoroughly archaic idea. He continues by saying the idea 
belongs to the mentality and outlook of bygone ages, and we should treat it as such. But it doesn't matter how much you try and deny it or dismiss it or pretend it's not there, talking about God's wrath. It's coming nonetheless. That's, that's why Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel. Verse 18, Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The apostles with great power and the great grace within them taught this message. A day of wrath is coming when Jesus will come again from heaven to judge this world. And on that day, you're either going to trust in the power of God for salvation, the gospel, Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. And you're going to enter his eternal kingdom or you will be judged on your own life. You'll bear the penalty of your own sins, which is what's meant by the wrath of God, and you will be given over to your sins permanently. Can't you see? It is out of love that these men, these apostles with great power, with great boldness, with great grace, continued to preach this message. Friends, it is never loving to not tell somebody that they are in danger. That's why even in the face of pressure, threats, intimidation, they continue to give their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm reminded of this quote. Her, it's from an author named Rosaria Butterfield. She says, The evangelical church has been so concerned about being perceived as compassionate and perceived as gracious that we have for decades overlooked the thing that actually makes us compassionate and gracious, which is sharing the news of salvation in Jesus. They continue to give their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus because it is the power of God for salvation. And don't miss this, as the gospel, that message as grace powerfully works in those who believe, it actually powerfully changes people. You see that in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now, don't miss this. This is an important point. Notice the powerful supernatural change that the gospel works in their hearts. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. That is a powerful change of heart, isn't it? Again, I don't want to pick on my daughter Jane here, but I'm going to. On Wednesday night, uh, all the kids on our street decided they wanted to make, you know, a massive pile of leaves that they could jump into. And we don't have a tree in our yard. So they decided to go to our three neighbors' yards, get all the leaves from their yard and put them in my yard. And it made a massive mound, I'm talking like six feet tall, that they would run into and then jump into. And we took pictures. It was all fine. It was all good. But in the middle of taking those leaves from a neighbor's yard and bringing them over to our yard, my kids had Tupperwares that they were filling up. And they would come, they'd bring them to me, and I'd put them on top. Well, they were all very eager to be the ones that brought me the Tupperware. So there's a point at which my daughter Annie picks up one of the Tupperwares and starts bringing it over to me half full. And Jane, who was filling up the Tupperware, starts running after Annie and saying, that's mine, that's mine. 
And then she grabs hold of the Tupperware, and Annie and her are in the epic struggle that all kids get into. Mine! No, it's mine! No, it's mine! So finally I'm thinking, okay, now Dad's got to come break this up. And I go over to him and I say, hey, it's not mine, it's not mine, it's mine! Let's keep one thing straight. And that settled it, of course. You realize one of the most sure marks of God's grace in a person's life One of the surest marks of grace in our hearts is a change in how we think about things, how we think about money, how we think about possessions. It goes from being mine and it's transformed. No longer do we think of things as mine. I worked for that. That belongs to me. I earned it. I own it. I deserve it. I'm endowed with an inalienable right to this property. Instead, hearts change. Instead, our attitude begins to recognize what has always been true, but we were so quick to overlook. Namely, that the earth is the, or sorry, the fullness of the earth is the Lord's. Psalm 24, verse 1. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1, 7. Or Deuteronomy 10, 14. To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heaven, the earth with all that is in it. And verse 32, the things that belong to us are not our own. Now, of course, these, these followers of Jesus, they still own private property They still owned homes and fields and clothes and other material possessions. This isn't communism. This isn't communalism. We talked about that in Acts chapter 2 with another one of these summaries. But their approach, their heart, their, their, their disposition has been supernaturally changed that they recognize things for what they really are. Namely, they are gifts given by God, created by God to be used in the service of God. By the grace and great power of Jesus at work, no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What they thought before was mine, and now they actually recognize it for what it is. This is a supernatural, powerful, Jesus-wrought change of heart. And look at what happens as a result. Verse 34. It says, as a result... There was not a needy person among them within the church. And as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You know what's happening here, this this change of heart? What this is, is this approach to possessions is, is just hearts gripped by Jesus. That's all it is. It's Jesus' grace now supernaturally being reflected in the hearts of people within the church. And again, look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says, when we give, that should be the thing that we reflect on. We should think about giving as a reflection on what Jesus has already accomplished. He wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians And he reminded them of the grace of Jesus, and that should be what motivates their giving. He writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's what's happening in this church. 
As people's hearts are powerfully changed by Jesus, their approach to money, possessions, things starts to reflect Jesus. Those who had excess, they began to sell things that they had in order to provide for those who lacked, those who had need. Just as Jesus, who was rich, the Son of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant, becoming poor, so that we poor sinners might be made rich in his righteousness, in his sacrifice, in his grace. It's that approach to things that reflects the grace of Jesus. And you look at what they're giving away. These are not unsubstantial things. Many sold lands, they sold homes, they sold their most valuable possessions. They maybe even considered selling their 2003 Burgundy Tundra. But they give it away as a reflection of the grace of Jesus at work in their hearts. Do a quick comparison. Because we, we need to be challenged here and to search our hearts. Here's the comparison. Paradigm number one. Paradigm number one is the Old Testament. In paradigm one, in the Old Testament, God commanded, give 10% of your income to the temple, to the church. Paradigm number two, New Testament. God says we should sacrificially give to the church as a way that reflects the grace and power of Jesus. That's what you see on display here at the end of Acts chapter four. Third paradigm is today. Gray Matter, which is a, they're a Christian research group, they did this comprehensive analysis of giving habits of Christians throughout the United States, they found 13% of evangelical Christians tithed last year. Only 13% followed paradigm number one. 25% of people who call themselves Christians in America gave nothing to the church in the last year. They didn't follow paradigm one or two. 19% of Christians on average gave nothing at all to any organization. On average, the evangelical Christian gives 2% of their income to the church every year. Do you know how much Christians gave during the Great Depression? 3.5%. That deserves like a Gary Coleman meme, right? Like, what you talking about? Right, that shouldn't be the case. We need to search our hearts. Does your heart, your attitude toward things, money, does it reflect Jesus who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that we who are in poverty might become rich? Does it reflect that? Search your heart. After all, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 36, there's this man, his name's Barnabas. He's, he's held up as kind of this prototype, the, a prototype of what it looks like when the grace of God grips somebody's heart and they're changed as a result. It says of this man named Joseph, whose changed name is Barnabas. We'll see why here. He's, it says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. One of the most sure marks of Jesus' grace in your heart is a change in how we handle treasure. If you looked at 
at Barnabas's bank statement, you would know where his heart is because you saw where his treasure went. His heart was reflected in how he handled stuff. He, he reflected on Jesus who was rich and became poor so that he who was poor might become rich. Deer Creek, can we search our hearts? Look at the great grace and power of Jesus at work. It's evident in the apostles when the screws are tightened, they don't crack because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. When more and more and more people believe, Jesus supernaturally changes hearts to reflect his grace. Just like at the time of David, God is establishing his church. He's establishing his people. He is a God of power. He is a God of great grace. But He's also a God to greatly be feared. That's what you see, chapter 5, verse 1. Barnabas is the prototype. Remember, he's, he's kind of the prototype of Jesus' grace and power. But then it says, but, in distinction from Barnabas, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of their property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, Ananias and Sapphira, probably what happened is that they saw Barnabas and potentially others selling their excess and giving it to the church. And they probably overheard what people were saying about them, right? They, they were probably saying of Barnabas, look how generous Barnabas is. Wow! Can you believe he would sell his land in Cyprus? I... I don't know how much that must have been, but it had to have been a lot. That man is so godly, such an encouragement. He is so generous. And you know what? It was true. It was true. This man was generous. He was a son of encouragement, encouraging the people of God as a prototype of piety and holiness and self-denial, as a prototype of what it looks like to reflect the heart of Jesus. And seeing Barnabas and overhearing these conversations, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they started having conversations of their own. You see that in verse 2. It says, it was with his wife's knowledge. They're in this together. And they're talking and saying, whoa, can you believe Barnabas did that? that? That land in Cyprus was worth a fortune. It's probably worth as much as the property that we own. It's probably worth the same amount as we could sell ours for $500,000 maybe. So they sold it. And they too were going to sell that land and give the proceeds to the church. But as they did, maybe they have a little bit of buyer's remorse. Who knows? They're, they're thinking, well, let's not give it all away. Let's keep back some of the proceeds for ourselves. We'll give the rest to the church. People will think we're giving it all, but what's the difference anyway? We're still giving away a lot, way more than anyone else. Now, this is going to become clear later on in the passage. They didn't have to sell any of it. God never said, give away every single thing that you own. He didn't say that to him. He said, you don't have to do that. But they were going to do it anyway. If it was 500,000, we don't know the exact amounts, but if it was 500,000, like, you know what? Let Let's give away 300, we'll keep 200. Nobody will know the difference. We'll say we sold it. We say we, we, say we gave it for the full amount and laid it at the apostles' feet. But do you see the problem here? See, Barnabas sold his field and laid it at the apostles' feet because his heart had been changed. 
He knew Jesus by his grace. He said, Jesus took on flesh for me. Jesus loved me. He suffered for me, was crucified for me. Now I want to use these proceeds for what they are, gifts given by God, made by God, used to the service and glory of God. And as a result, people within the church, they recognized Jesus within him. They recognized what true self-denial, true generosity, true piety, true holiness actually looked like. And no wonder because Jesus was producing these things by his grace in his heart. Alternatively, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their field, laid it at the apostles' feet, not because they wanted not because they wanted to use the proceeds for the service and glory of Jesus. Maybe that was a part of it for the start. No, they sold their field so that they would be recognized. That's the difference. So that people in the church would say, look at their self-denial. Wow. Look at their generosity. Look at Ananias. Look at Sapphira. Aren't they so pious? Aren't they so holy? They wanted recognition for being spiritual people. Jesus warned against this, right? He said, when you give, don't go blowing trumpets in front of you, you know, announcing your giving so that everybody looks at you and says, whoa, look at that generous guy. Here comes the generous giver. Don't do that. My baseball coach in high school, he had this term, he called it window dressing or he called them window dressers. And these were the people who, it wasn't enough to play baseball. No, It wasn't enough to even play on varsity. It wasn't enough to be a starter. No, these were the type of people who had to let everyone know that you played baseball. So they'd wear their hats to class, even though you're not supposed to wear hats in school. But then when the teacher says, take off your hat, they're like, oh, man, I'm sorry. I'm a baseball player. You know, I forgot. Or it wasn't enough to be on varsity. You had to let everyone else see that you were on varsity. So every once in a while, you'd wear your black practice jersey because the JV wears red. I'm not one of them. Or you had to make sure everybody was aware you're a starter. So, you know, you'd kind of complain like, oh, man, I'm just really tired. I'm I'm not used to playing so much. Last year it was so much easier because I would have rest during the game. But now I'm a starter. I'm so tired. That's window dressing. You see, it's not enough to play baseball. You have to let everyone know you play baseball. And, And soon what happens, baseball isn't the goal. Instead, being recognized as a baseball player, that becomes the goal. That's Ananias and Sapphira. Rather than seeing their possessions as given by God, created by God, used for the service of God, reflecting Jesus, rather than Jesus being their goal, the goal became recognition. They wanted the church to say to them, look at their self-denial, look at their generosity, look at Ananias and Sapphira, aren't their hearts so pure, so full of grace, so full of Jesus? But there was nothing more than window dressing. A claim to sanctity and self-denial and pretense of generosity and piety, that became their goal. But there's just one problem with this whole scheme that they've concocted, and it's this, God sees their heart. And so does Peter. In verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did not it remain your own? You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to sell it. Nobody was asking you to do that. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could have told us you only gave us half. We would have been fine with that. 
Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. God sees his heart. While the church looks at Ananias on the outside, of course, they say, look at his piety, his holiness. God, on the other hand, looks at Ananias and he sees what's really going on underneath the surface. He sees his heart. He sees it's filled with lies, deception, presumption. There's some here this morning, maybe you're thinking, I have everyone here fooled. On the outside, of course, I have church life here, church friends, church family, church clothes. I have my church singing voice. It's rather lovely. I'm a Christian here. Others think I'm godly, I'm gracious, I'm generous, but you're living a double life. And God knows it. He sees your heart. You may have fooled everyone, but you can't fool God. He sees your attitude. He sees your thoughts. He sees your lies and your deception. He sees your presumptuousness. Ananias His heart was exposed for what it really was, just as Barnabas' heart was exposed for what it really was. But when God looked at Ananias, in terrifying display of judgment, just as he did with Uzzah in the days of David, God reminds this young church, he is a God of great power. He is a God of great grace. He is establishing his people, but he is also a God to be greatly feared, a God of supreme holiness and righteousness. He will not be trifled with. Sapphira, Ananias' wife, she comes three hours later. She hasn't heard about her husband. She hasn't heard the story of him falling down dead at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to her, "Uh, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Did you really sell it for 500,000, Sapphira? And she said, yeah. Yeah, we sold it for that much. Verse 9, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This scene is dreadful. This scene is a terrifying display of God's holy judgment on sin. You can understand why great fear came among the church, can't you? Sometimes, you know, when we, we teach the Bible, we're quick to point out that word fear, you know, it's, it's much more robust. It's a much more comprehensive term. It means awe and reverence and wonder and respect. But do you also know what fear means? Fear. Fear as in trembling before something that could destroy you. Fear as in your knees are quaking and shaking before an almighty God who is holy and righteous kind of fear. Fear like shuddering at the inmost recesses of your heart as God looks upon what is truly inside you kind of fear. He who walks upright fears the Lord. But he whose ways are devious despises God. Proverbs 14. 
Some of us read this account with disdain. How could God be so inflexible? How could he be so judgmental? Friends, God was right. God was right to end the lives of Ananias and Sapphira for the wages of sin is death. The only reason any person in this room, myself included, the only reason any of us do not suffer a similar fate is strictly by the unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and often, way too often, unappreciated grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by his sacrifice and atonement for our sins before a holy and righteous God that we do not suffer the same fate as these two individuals. God was right to strike down Uzzah. He was right to judge Ananias and Sapphira. And he would be right, apart from Jesus, to strike down any of us. If you and I do not belong to Jesus through faith, If you and I do not know the grace of Jesus Christ and embrace it as the power of God for salvation for all those who believe, if he hasn't changed your heart and forgiven your sins by his sacrifice, then it is right that God would judge any of us. He whose walk is upright fears the Lord. And in humility, repentance, and sincerity embraces Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he he talks about the, the four main characters. They enter the wardrobe to go into Narnia where they meet the beavers and they're having a conversation with them about Aslan, this person that they've heard of or this figure they've heard of. And Lucy asks, is, is Aslan, is, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was man. Is is he safe? I feel nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So he isn't safe, says Lucy. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Deer Creek. That's our Savior Jesus, the one who is great in power, great in grace, but a God who is to be greatly feared. Who calls us in humility and repentance and sincerity and fear to embrace him and rest in his goodness. For after all, as the scriptures say, it is a dreadful and fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Jesus Christ, the lion from the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God who was slain, fell into those hands of wrath for us. So that by his sacrifice, we might approach him who is good. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we thank you for this reminder, uh, this reminder that you gave through your Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of your Spirit, written by the written by this man named Luke, who who wrote these things because we desperately need him. We desperately need this reminder that you're a God. You are good. You are gracious. You are powerful, and also a God to be feared. As Moses heard, you are the Lord, the Lord, God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but by who, who by no means will clear the guilty. You, God, as Isaiah said, are holy, holy, holy. The whole world is filled with your glory. Lord, we confess that if we were to stand before your holiness right now, apart from Christ, we would be consumed. Like Ananias, we would face your wrath and judgment, but you, Father, in your great love, gave us your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lion from the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who was slain, who saves us from your wrath to come. He's the King of creation who became a servant for our sake. He was rich yet became poor. And by his sacrifice, by his death, we can come to you. So we come now to you in humility and repentance and fear and know that we are forgiven. It is by your gospel, which is the power of God to salvation, that we come before you. Help us repent, Jesus. Where we're prone to hypocrisy, insincerity, pride, where we're walking in presumptuousness and deception, change us where our hearts don't reflect your grace and powerful work, change them. We ask all of this in your name, for you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all creation, our Savior and the only mediator between God and man. Amen.